Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time? Welcome to you. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to anybody tuning in online for the first time. I'd like to start class with um, having you talk to each other. A big part of Against the Stream's intention, a big part of my motivation for teaching and having a community is to help you connect with other peers, help uh, what we call Sangha, Buddhist word for community, Sangha building. You know, we come together and there's a few levels of coming to a meditation class. My sense is you come to learn about Buddhism, come to get some uh, instruction and support for your meditation practice. But if you want to follow the Buddhist path, if you get inspired and, and serious about it, then uh, what's necessary is that you build friendships, connections with other people that you are accountable to and supportive of and supported by. And, um, and it's hard to do that. You know, it's hard to, my own ex early experience of attending Buddhist groups was uh, I'd go in and I wouldn't meet anybody because you come and you meditate and then you leave, <laughs> listen to a talk and then split. So for years, I've been trying to get you to talk to each other so that you start to meet each other and, and hopefully make some connections. Tonight, I'm gonna to talk about um, this dilemma, the great human dilemma of um, when should we trust our minds and when should we not trust our minds? You know, how, how often has your mind given you false information, uh, lied to you in some way or another? And in retrospect, we look back and, and we can hopefully have some humility and, and think like, oh yeah, I was confused. I was wrong. I was mistaken. I was so convinced of something at the time. And now looking back, I see that I was, wasn't what was true. Um, I'm going to talk about that tonight in the Buddha's teaching on developing wisdom. And um, I'm especially interested in um, this, this part of this prayer, the saying, uh, the wisdom to know the difference. The wisdom to know the difference between, you know, what we can and should do something about, to have the courage to take action and to respond wisely. And when um, actually the wise thing is to just accept what's happening right now and feel it and tend to it with as much compassion, as much acceptance, as much uh, wisdom as we can. So I don't know how to form, I don't totally know how to form that into a question for you to discuss, but and I, I feel like I did this somewhat recently, but I guess part of the question is like, what's your how skeptical are you of your own thoughts? How often do you 
believe your mind? How much of the time are you identified with what you're thinking and pretty sure that your mind, that you're right, right? <laughs> that whatever your mind is telling you to feel, to do, to is trustworthy? Or maybe that's the question. How trustworthy do you think your own mind is at this point? Now, this is, I think it's hard because I think most people trust their minds pretty much all the time. We believe our minds pretty much all of the time. And then you start meditating and you start to see like, wow, my mind's really full of shit a lot of the time. Or you get into recovery or whatever it is. And you start to see like, wow, my mind's not really that trustworthy, but I still tend to listen to it and obey it. So like, where, where are you at? You know, in Buddhism, the, um, you know, the Buddha says the untrained mind is untrustworthy. He says people that haven't, he, he calls us, he calls us them. He says untrained worldlings that go around annoying each other with their views and opinions. And it's hard to have the humility to be like, yeah, that's me. I'm that fucking person that is so convinced that I'm right and annoying everyone else that doesn't agree with me. No matter what, I don't have the humility to be like, well, this is just my own view and opinion, but yours is also valid. And then especially once you've been meditating for a while and you've developed some identity with your Buddhism and your, your wisdom, and you're like, but I'm for sure right. <laughs> Because I'm not an untrained worldling. I'm spiritual as shit. And I, I've got all this wisdom. And, the, and then you kind of have pity. Those untrained worldlings out there that don't even know their own minds. I'm sure that I'm right. And they're pretty much everyone on Facebook is wrong. <laughs> even the spiritual people posting those annoying memes. So how, where are you at? Where are you at with how often you're kind of uh, believing your, your own internal uh, views and opinions? Do you have a, uh, I don't know, a healthy skepticism of your own thought process? <laughs> Do you have people in your life that you check in with and say, hey, I'm, do you have Sangha? A lot, of, a lot of our community is recovery. So we have sponsors, we have mentors, we have fellowship or sangha that we go to and be like, hey, I'm thinking about this. And then we have feedback, right? From community, from people that say like, you're, no, don't do that. Absolutely don't believe that or think, you know, don't, don't trust that thought process. Um, but I feel like this is the great dilemma of awakening. You know you can't totally trust your own mind, but also you still believe all of your own thoughts and feelings most of the time. Even though you know, I can't, it's not giving me the right information some amount of the time. In the beginning, very little of the time. And then later, maybe after years of practice, you're like, actually my mind gives me more loving, compassionate, generous thoughts more truth, less bullshit over the years of practice, recovery, whatever it is for you, but still some. I'm blowing my whole Dharma talk right now, but 
I was thinking, I was trying to explain to my partner, Lily, earlier. I was like, you know, our minds, I don't know what the equivalent is, but imagine if like your mind did to you around emotions or around uh, like clinging or aversion, what it does to you. Like, imagine if it did that, like around math, like something that you know for sure. Like, don't you know for sure at this point that everything's impermanent? Right? You know, you know, you know that. Like, it's everything's impermanent. Like, you know, two plus two equals four. Right? We can all agree two plus two equals four. <laughs> everything's impermanent. These aren't like up for debate. It's not like, well, that's your truth. Your truth is everything's two plus two equals four. It's like, no, that's just, you know, the, the agreed upon reality that we live in. Two, everything's impermanent. But sometimes your mind says, how often does your mind says, this is going to last forever? This feeling is not impermanent. This heartbreak, this loss, this fear is not impermanent. And your mind lies to you. And you know, like there's that part of you that knows that's not true. It's, it, I know everything's impermanent, but right now it feels like this is never going to fucking end, especially when it's painful. And it's lying to us. But our mind doesn't do that around math, right? What if your mind did that to you? Like, actually, two plus two is five promise. You would just be like, what are you talking about to your own mind? Like, I know it's four. It's not five. <laughs> it's not permanent. This is misinformation that my mind is giving me, that the, these feelings that I'm having are mistaken. I don't know if that analogy works or not, but I was just, it's such a dilemma that we have a mind and an emotional experience that isn't very wise. Even after years of meditation, it's not, it can be not very wise, our, our feelings. But that's where the wisdom to know the difference between, is this wisdom, is this true? Or is this not wisdom? Is this ignorance? Is this confusion? So diagnose yourself, like, where are you at? Do you relieve your shit 90% of the time, 99% of the time? Are you getting more to a place where there's a, a healthy skepticism and some uh, ability to identify confused thoughts like this is going to last forever and say like, oh, yeah, my mind's telling me it's going to last forever, but I know that's not true. My mind's telling me I'm unlovable, but I know that's not true. My mind's telling me that I'm unworthy, but I know that's not true. And having that wisdom to know the difference between what your mind is telling you or your heart, your emotions are feeling, which is also the mind, versus what's actually true, reality, which is you're lovable, you're worthy. Two plus two equals four. <laughs> Everything's impermanent. Like there is a truth with a capital T. But the mind doesn't always give you that. So break into small groups and discuss a little bit your relationship to your mind and this discernment that we're trying to develop and this wisdom to know the difference between wisdom and ignorance when it's arising, confusion and truth. So go ahead and at home, I will um, break you into 
small groups. Mindfulness is the tool, meditation, mindfulness meditation is the tool to uh, developing the discernment that we need, the wisdom that we need to uh, no longer obey the mind all the time and also not a meditation technique that's just ignoring the mind all of the time. The third foundation, core part of what mindfulness is, is observing non-judgmental present time awareness of your own thoughts and starting to uh, see clearly and, and almost like an inventory of your own thoughts of like, oh, this is, oh, look at that ignorance arising in my mind. <laughs> look at that uh, fear, that craving, that self-centeredness and just watching it and seeing the arising and passing of unwholesome mind states, resentments and uh, you know, lusts and all of these stories that the mind is telling us that in some way or another have the subcontext of you should suffer about this. <laughs> How often is your mind, you know, when you kind of take a step back and, and look at what your mind is doing, your mind in some way or another is saying, you should suffer about this. You should cling, you should resent, <laughs> you should take it personal, you should get revenge, something. So the mindfulness, which is observing that, being like, oh, isn't that interesting? Look at what my mind is doing. Look at all this fear. Look at all this anger. Look at all this feelings of unworthiness, all of this um, confusion that my mind produces. It's not wisdom. It's not all loving. You know. And also, hopefully, the more you start to see, oh, my mind also has moments, and hopefully more and more moments of loving awareness of kindness and generosity and feelings of like, I am worthy and I am lovable and I am totally capable and fully responsible and responding appropriately, right? Hopefully it's not just bad news in your mind. I know my early experience of meditation as I looked at my mind, I was like, it's all bad news. One fucking insult after another up here. And then year, you know, after staying sober and meditating and starting to see that actually there's some kindness coming and there's some self-esteem coming and some uh, feelings of, of wisdom and some knowing the difference between what thoughts are trustworthy and which ones are not. So mindfulness is the path to that wisdom, to that discernment that we're looking for. And um, we'll meditate together. And then we'll have some more discussion. So find a way to sit that's upright, that's relaxed. A posture that feels sustainable, but that's not too rigid. A relaxed posture. Sometimes it's useful to think as you close your eyes and relax your body. Visualize your skeleton, the bones stacked, sitting upright, balancing on the chair, the cushion. And the flesh of the body hanging loosely around the skeleton. Release the jaw, the brow, the shoulders. Soften your belly as you exhale. 
this way we become more receptive to our own awareness, not resisting, not armored. Let it all go. And bring an attitude of friendliness, friendliness to this mind, the confused mind and the wise mind. An attitude of friendliness, of loving kindness to your body, to your emotions. And spending the first few minutes directing the attention to the sensations of the breath. Let the thoughts be in the background. Focus your attention on just simply breathing in and out mindfully, non judgmental awareness of the breath. We begin by ignoring the mind, focusing on the body. Here, present, letting go of the past and future plans and memories. As we bring an embodied awareness to right now, sitting. Feeling the breath as it comes and goes.
You could choose to keep the attention on the breath. But this wisdom comes from beginning to observe the mind. Let your thoughts come and go, bringing awareness to the process of thoughts, feelings. An attitude of friendliness and interest in your own views and opinions, plans and memories, hopes and fears. knowing that everything is impermanent and therefore not worth clinging to. Observe how often your mind is telling you you should cling. You should worry. You should suffer.
What's your mind doing right now? What are you thinking about? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Is the story your mind is telling you true? Are you identified, believing it, lost in the stories? Are you observing? These are just thoughts. This is just the mind thinking about the past, about the future.
can help to note what the mind is thinking about. Is it a plan, a memory? <coughs> when the mind, the Buddha said, when the mind is craving, name it, this is craving, this is clinging. This is anger, this is fear. We get so wrapped up in the thought, the emotion, the story. But to step back, to sit and observe, name the feeling. And sometimes it's quite positive. This is joy, this is love. This is a thought of kindness, appreciation, gratitude.
even when the mind, the body tell you it's not okay to sit here and be uncomfortable, that you should do something about it. It's not true. It's totally okay to sit here, to be uncomfortable. To learn to tolerate it, to tend to it with as much kindness as you can, to soften around it. It's okay to be uncomfortable. It's important to learn to tolerate discomfort. Too much of life is unpleasant. To not have the skill of compassion for unpleasantness. Spending the last couple of minutes with the loving kindness phrases for yourself, saying to ourselves, may I be happy just as I am. May I be at ease. May I be free from suffering. May I be happy. May I be at ease. May I be free from suffering. The Buddhist path is one of developing wisdom. Wisdom extinguishes the causes of suffering. Uh, The big Buddhist promise is um, you can be free from greed and hatred and delusion, the three core causes of human suffering unhappiness and that we experience that freedom through the meditative training of developing wisdom and that wisdom to know when our mind is giving good advice good wisdom and when our mind is confused and that humility to it for all of us to admit that like Sometimes my mind is quite confused, giving me bad advice, filled with ignorance. And how often are we believing it? And uh, 
identified with and incarnating as. And it's one of the reasons why the mindfulness meditation is so important. And especially this third foundation focus, observing your mind, becoming aware, intimate of what your mind is doing and not just meditation techniques that allow you to ignore your mind. Because there's a real temptation. It feels so good to ignore your mind. Just focus on your breath. Focus on your mantra. Focus on something that will allow you to ignore the mind. Because the mind so often is creating suffering for us. Self-centered, fear-based, craving, aversion, greed, hatred. Delusion arises in the mind. So we love meditation techniques that allow us to temporarily avoid. I think it's why like there's an upsurge in popularity around like the sound baths or the, you know, the kind of meditation experiences where you can go to the sound bath or the whatever it is. And it's like, cool, I get to listen to the bells and ignore my mind and killer <laughs> temporarily pleasant experience. But that's not the kind of meditation that's going to, you know, lead to wisdom, not ignoring our minds and just having a pleasant relaxation, but actually turning towards and developing the discernment. There's a teaching where the Buddha says, um, abandon what is unskillful. He goes on to say, one can abandon what is unskillful, or you know, you could translate that as ignorant, confused, unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If abandoning that which is unskillful would cause harm, I would not ask you to do so. But as it brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say abandon it. And this is referring to mind states for sure, what we're talking about, abandon unskillful mind states but he's also talking about unskillful actions unskillful speech you know our eightfold path focuses on you know being careful with our communication careful with our actions abandon all of the unskillful things that we do and say and think and feel that lead to suffering and unhappiness renunciation is a core part of what we're doing and an internal renunciation about what thoughts we believe, we feed, we become identified with. Abandon itself feels like, um, feels a little too, I don't know, it feels for me, the term, I'm not sure what the Pali Buddhist term is that's being translated as abandon. But for me, abandon always feels a little too like um, permanent. As if like, just abandon it once and for all. <laughs> Jump ship, abandon ship. Like you're just out of there. I've, you know, I've abandoned you. And it feels for, for some reason, I have a connotation of like forever. And um, if we could, right? If any of us had the ability to simply stop those unwholesome, unskillful thoughts from arising, we all would have done it already. 
right? If you could just make a decision of like, I abandon fear. I abandon anger. I abandon self-centeredness. I abandon unworthiness. I abandon clinging. You know, like how many times have you abandoned clinging? <laughs> how many times today did you abandon clinging? And so it doesn't, I don't feel like it points as much to uh, abandoning is a moment to moment letting go. In this moment, I let go. In this moment, rather than once and for all, I abandon you forever. Because we can't. It doesn't work like that. I feel like there's, if I look at my own process with meditation, um, part of it is belief. Um, before I started meditating, I don't know about you, but before I started meditating, I just believed pretty much everything my mind told me. I didn't know that there was any possibility to not obey my mind and believe my mind. I mean, once in a while, my mind would tell me to do really crazy shit, and I'd be like, I can't get away with that. But I still pretty much believed like what I thought. And most of the time, my mind would tell me to do really crazy shit. And I'd be like, okay, let's get arrested. Fuck it. <laughs> so first, it feels like a process of observing the mind. And the first level of abandonment feels like believing the um, confusion. My mind kept, was very confused the craving, the greed, the hatred, the delusion, the self-centered fear. And I stopped, I started seeing it not as truth, but as ignorance. I started understanding like my mind is quite ignorant and it's producing all of these ignorant, self-centered, fear-based, lust, hatred, thoughts. And the belief um, started to be like a, a healthy skepticism came in. But I still felt like that's who I am. I am greedy. I don't believe it as good anymore. I don't. Uh, I am angry. I am afraid. I am. And then there's a shift that starts to happen in abandoning identification of starting to understand. Actually, these thoughts and feelings are not who we are. They're not that personal they're not not only they're not so trustworthy this they're unskillful like starting to see oh all of this category all of the greed all of the hatred all of the self-centered identification uh is unskillful and putting it in that category and not believing it and then starting to abandon identification and I feel like this is the, one of the biggest keys to our liberation, to you know, what the Buddha is teaching us. I don't think that the Buddha is saying you can meditate your way to the point where no unwholesome thoughts arise. What he's saying is you can develop enough wisdom so that when those unwholesome thoughts arise, you know that they're unwholesome, they're unskillful. And you abandon belief in them and identification with them as who you are. So that when your mind says, you should suffer about this, 
you're unworthy, you're unlovable, you're not going to be okay. You should cling. <laughs> you should, you know, you should hate. You should. And you see those thoughts come up in your mind. And you see like, oh, I have a relationship to these thoughts. I've abandoned the identification with that's who I am. And you see, it's just a unskillful thought. Does that make sense? I feel like this is a much, for me, it's the only way I can completely get my mind around, you know, the Buddha saying, abandon them. It's possible to abandon them. Because it sounds a little bit like they're going to go away forever. I don't think they do. Even in most of you here, my, most of you've heard my, my thoughts about this, which is uh, all of these uh, unskillful, abandon that which is unskillful, greed, hatred, delusion. In some way, in traditional Buddhism, it's, it's what Mara is. Mara is this personification of greed and hatred and confusion, part of our human mind. And uh, the Buddha was not able to I, abandon Mara. Mara, he lived with Mara, his, even after full enlightenment. You know, it's the, kind of like the art that I have up here in the center. Those of you here in person can see, right, here's the Buddha, but then the demons, Mahakala or Mara or whatever we want to call these demons, is, is this somewhat intentional of like the Buddha is totally at peace, but those guys are still there fucking with him. Those of you at home can't really see the... Tibetan deities over there. Um, but that, that's what true liberation seems to be, is that we have that ability to be at ease, even though the mind is sometimes attacking, even though the mind is giving, you know, unskillful, unwholesome, but we develop the wisdom to know the difference. And we develop that wisdom through meditation, through renunciation, through our own efforts. This is very different than, you know, this prayer that I'm commenting on, the serenity prayer. It starts with, God, grant me the serenity. As though there's just going to be this magical bestowing of wisdom. Right? If you just pray, then you'll ma magically you'll have wisdom will be bestowed on you. And now you will know the difference of when you should accept what's happening and when you should have the courage. Buddhism takes this much more humanist psychology approach and says, like, that's just not going to happen by itself. You can't pray wisdom into existence. You have to train your mind. You have to observe your mind so that you start to, in real time, identify this is ignorance, this is wisdom. This is ignorance, this is wisdom. Ignorance, 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 wisdom. And so that you develop that knowing directly, so that we develop that knowing directly, and it's not sort of somehow magically divine intervention. All of a sudden, now you know the difference. Now you know the difference because you've directly observed in meditation the nature of your mind, the unskillful. And he says, cultivate the next line there in that teaching. He says, cultivate the good. One can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. This if this cultivation of good, wholesome, wise mind states 
He says, if it brought harm, I would not ask you to do it. But as this cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, I say, cultivate it. So in, in the meditative practice, we're cultivating wisdom, the good, the understanding of impermanence, the understanding of breaking that identification with our mind, with our personality, even with our body, starting to see this is not who I am, this impermanent physical form, these impermanent emotions, these impermanent thoughts, not self, not personal. Cultivate that wisdom that leads to non-attachment, that leads to the end of suffering. Cultivate the good, he's referring to compassion. Compassion is the good, the wise response to pain. As I said in the end of the meditation, like, how often are you in pain and your mind and your body is saying, this is not safe. <laughs> I'm not comfortable. I can't tolerate it. Too cold. Turn off the fucking air conditioning. I can't sit here and be uncomfortable. This is bullshit. And your mind saying that when actually sitting here and being uncomfortable is the path to wisdom. Knowing that I can actually be uncomfortable and be completely at ease, whether it's physical or emotional or mental difficulty, I need to increase my tolerance for that and my kindness towards it. And then actually this discomfort in my knee or my skin or wherever it is my, in my mind is an opportunity. That's a good, it's good actually. This is a great opportunity. I'm always reminded when I start talking about that of the, there's a Tibetan practice prayer that says, um, and that's a kind of daily reflection that says, may I be met with the appropriately, appropriate difficulties today so that I have the opportunity to respond with compassion. Like what if you reframe your life that way every time you're uncomfortable? Oh, this is an appropriate opportunity for tolerance, for compassion, for acceptance. And actually imagine praying for that. Try it for a week. Pray every day for pain, for difficulties, so that you have the opportunity. Because, right, if you're too comfortable, if everything's going a little too smoothly, no compassion. Not necessary because everything's going a little too smoothly. May I have the appropriate difficulties? Meditation is the appropriately difficult practice of sitting with ourselves, sitting with our own minds, with our own sensations, our own emotions. When he's talking about cultivate the good, cultivate non-attachment, cultivate compassion, cultivate forgiveness. This will lend, lead to the end of suffering. I had an experience this weekend um, where I was out with friends at a concert and um, we're having dinner before and then we're going to the concert and I saw this person who um, had, in my perception, had caused me incredible harm. And I hadn't seen them in some years. And they were like two tables away. And it was just so interesting. And I was with Sangha, I was with my, you know, Dharma homies. And uh, just to watch my mind go like, you should suffer. 
anger, fear, resentment, right? Immediately my mind, you know, just like identified like enemy, they hurt you, you should be mad at them. They cause great harm. And I saw my mind start to detail like, oh, well, they did this and they did that. And, they, and, and it wasn't just you, it was to the whole community and, you know, financially and all of this stuff, like the mind started to detail. And I just sat with it and really pretty quickly said, I don't want to suffer about this person and started sending them forgiveness and trying to see them through the eyes of compassion. And, you know, and that little sort of equanimity reminder of like, they have the karma of their actions and I have the karma of my actions and whatever my part was in it. And, um, but that was because of my Buddhist practice and decades of Buddhist practice that my mind still said, you should suffer. But pretty quickly, the wisdom mind kicked in, the trained mind kicked in and said, it's not worth suffering about. I still chose to ignore them. I wasn't, didn't want a confrontation, didn't any, I mean, I was like, mm, I'm going to leave it. And then we went to the concert. This is that dinner. And then we went to concert and then, um, they were like right next to us at the concert. Just like opportunity, like talk about like an uh, appropriate opportunity to just be like, okay, I don't even get to ignore this. Like this is there, this is here. They are here and the feelings are here. So I was doing some forgiveness and, and then Jason was with me and uh, this is somebody that we both used to work with. Um, and they they said hi to him and I was, I was like right there and they weren't gonna and then they were like okay and then they came and started talking to me and then and and then talked to me for like an hour and there, there was this whole internal like i did not want to talk to this person but also i wanted to be kind and i wanted to be compassionate and i wanted to in whatever way um you know be make amends for any whatever my part was by just not being unkind and just and listen to this person who was re, who had relapsed and who was suffering a lot tell me about all of this suffering in their life and um you know like really traumatic suffering and being able to listen to them and see them through compassion of like even though you know of course like why do we hurt each other we hurt each other when we're suffering that very simple, like hurt people, hurt people. And that was what was happening for them back then. And it was what was even worse for them now. Um, tremendous amount of suffering. And there's that part, that ignorant part that says, I want to hurt you, even though you're hurting. Because your hurting has spilled out onto me and fuck you. <laughs> right? But what wisdom says, cultivate the good, which is actually, I want to be loving. I want to be compassionate. I want to be forgiving, even though your suffering spilled out onto me. This is my practice. This is how to not suffer in this world, even when it's totally justified. Even when the resentment and all of that is totally justified. So, probably not. Maybe, most likely. No, I didn't. I don't know who's in here. Um, 
I only, you, you guys put that up so everybody can see. I can only see four people on my screen, not, not all 50. <laughs> Russ is checking. <laughs> so I just feel like this is, I, I hope, a useful example of like the real time application of, you know, the mind will have a reactive, bad advice, ignorant response, even sort of justified in our worldly realm, but in our spiritual path and our uh, commitment to, to compassion and to forgiveness, we replace it. Ignorance arose, and I just chose to abandon it and to cultivate the good. Real-time practice of, I'm going to turn to forgiveness. I'm going to turn to compassion. I'm going to listen to this person who's on meth and speaking too close to me. <laughs> and I'm going to tolerate it, and I'm going to be kind. And have compassion for the suffering of this person, for my own happiness, for my own well-being, rather than uh, reacting in, in a, another way um, that would have caused more harm. I'll open it up to questions in a moment, but I just want to come back to this frame and this self-assessment that we all have to constantly be in. And I feel like it's the great dilemma of meditation and of life, of learning to trust ourselves. And when, can, when, when are our thoughts trustworthy? And when are they not so trustworthy? And, um, and eventually, there was a title of a book, Buddhist book, that was called, I never read the book, I just like titles sometimes, but it was called Turning the Mind into an Ally. And I really like that title and that sentiment of, uh, for sure, my experience anyways, was my mind was not an ally in any way. It was my enemy and it was trying to kill me in addiction and in confusion. And it was trying to create all kinds of suffering for me. It was not my friend. But after years of meditation, that example this weekend, of like, actually, there was that part of my mind that was like, you don't need to suffer about this. The part of my mind that was an ally and that had, you know, embraced the Buddhist path and the, to the point where it was like, hey, let's, let's not suffer. Let's respond totally counter to the initial instinct against the stream, against the initial fuck you feeling that arose mara saying this is a great opportunity to suffer and being able to just as the not that i'm a buddha in any way but just as the you know the buddha's response was i see you i see that unskillful thought and i'm going to choose the wise i'm going to choose the skillful response there's a choice there the wisdom to know the difference to choose and not everything that arises in our mind is trustworthy, but that discernment that comes where we start to make the right choice, to cultivate the good, to choose the skillful, to have the intervention, mindfulness-based, compassion-influenced intervention with our own 
minds, moment to moment. So I think those are my thoughts for tonight. What are your questions or comments or clarifications? Does it make sense? Uh, any questions? Please. Um, can you talk a little bit about, so when these thoughts come up, right? And you know it's not the wise thought. What I call it is that judgment. Why do you feel like this? You know, it's that very harmful self-positive judgment of this statement. Right. So um, could you hear the question at home? No. They're saying that, um, you know, when these unwise thoughts arise, then there's the judging mind that, that criticizes us, her, um, about the, like, you shouldn't be having this, shouldn't think this. It's interesting to unpack that a little bit. Why the fuck not? Who said that my mind should have no judgment or no unskilled, right? That's what, like, part of what I'm trying to do here, and I think Buddhism does, normalizes it. Of course you have unwise thoughts. Where did you get the memo that you are only supposed to be kind and loving all of the time? Is it really, like, where's that from? Is that Christianity, like that these are sinful thoughts? Is that where that conditioning came from? Uh, that it's somehow your fault. Buddhism normalizes it and says, of course you have unskillful thoughts and you also have the power to uh, abandon them, abandon belief and identification and choose wisdom over it. But unskillful thoughts, the first noble truth, suffering and ignorance is not your fault. So it is important to identify like, oh, I'm judging myself, I'm holding myself to a standard that's fucking impossible. Where did I learn that? Society, you know, be a good girl, be kind, be, be you know, whatever. where did I get that ignorant self-view? Now, the other thing is, I hope that's, you know, but part of what, that's one, one of the reasons I love, I say it all the time, I love that Buddhism normalizes it and takes the blame and judgment out of it. It's not your fault that your mind does this. It's totally your responsibility to do something about it, including that second layer of the judging mind, which is also unwholesome, right? My mind had anger and then I judged myself for having, you know, and then, and then the mind judged it for having anger. And then I judged myself for being judgmental. And then I felt ashamed that I wasn't at the place that I was non-judgmental about my own judgment yet. And then I was embarrassed that I was four layers out into judging myself for being judgmental. When I know this isn't my fault, I'm an idiot. Have you ever watched that? You ever watched that fucking dance in your mind? It arises and then you judge it and then you judge yourself for judging. And then your Buddhist superego kicks in and says, that's not very Buddhist. And then, <laughs> and it's all just like this internal dance going on. And at some point you catch it and be like, oh, well, look at that shit storm of confusion my mind just did. <laughs> all of these hindrances, the 
the multiple hindrance attack. There was self-doubt and then there was aversion and then there was craving for it to be different than it is. And all of a sudden I fell asleep because I was so exhausted, <laughs> fucking overwhelmed with emotion. The simple piece is like, don't judge the judgment either. It's not your fault that, you know, it's not even your fault that you're judge, judging it. Right? Did you, do, did you do it on purpose? Was it volitional? Did you make the decision? You know, I think I'm going to be real critical of myself right now. I choose criticism. No, it does it all by its fucking self. It's not who, it's not you. Without awareness, we have not, when we have not abandoned the identification and the belief, and we don't have that discernment, then we're like, oh, this unskillful thought. And then the judgment feels true, right? That feels like judgment so often it's like masquerading. It's in drag as wisdom. You're an asshole. Yeah, I am an asshole. <laughs> That's true. I shouldn't have those thoughts. Rather than the normalizing of it and being like, oh, yep, the unskillful thought met with an unskillful reaction. It's just what the mind does. Can I replace that? Even the judgment. Can I meet it with kindness? Can I replace it with compassion? With, oh, this is really unpleasant thoughts that are arising. Can I have some compassion for these thoughts? Can I forgive my mind for being critical? Forgive the judging mind. Forgive that Buddhist superego or whatever it is for you. Christian conditioning that says these are sinful thoughts. Probably don't even have that conscious thought, but why do you think you're not supposed to have any unwholesome thoughts? Where'd you get that? I said recently, and I think the other week here, maybe it was on retreat, that in some Buddhist countries, they think that there's not even self-hatred the way that we have it in the West. The difference between being born into a culture that says you're born into sin or being born into a culture that says you have Buddha nature and the suffering you will experience is totally normal and not that personal, and you can awaken and heal and become a being of compassion through your own efforts. Totally different cultural conditioning. Doesn't mean that people born in Buddhist countries don't suffer, they suffer, but not the kind of self-hatred suffering that so many of us experience. Confusion, judgment. Apparent, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they say. Um, Amy, go ahead. So the last um, couple of years, a big part of my practice um, that kind of started when we did the Ajahn Sumedho course was really paying attention to my intuition more and what happens in that pause when shit's all flying around and stuff, just stopping and really kind of paying attention to, and we did a lot of intuitive awareness stuff. And I found it super useful until my freaking love addiction decided to impersonate my intuitive awareness, which had to be pointed out to me by my wise mentor. <laughs> and it was like, I mean, I kind of refer to my intuitive awareness as like that little squeaky voice that I should listen to more 
did it, you know, it kind of feel the same and it felt just like that. And now in hindsight, I, you know, was a little, it's a little more clear as things often are just be interested in your thoughts on that. I mean, I don't, everybody could hear it even in the back. Um, I don't have that many thoughts on it other than like, th this is so important where that healthy skepticism questioning, cause that's, that's sort of like question everything, even your, what feels like intuitive wisdom, especially when it comes to relationships and romance. And, you know, sometimes, you, you know, we need the, we need our people around us to support us and to checks and balances and, and because um, so often we will talk ourselves uh, into thinking like, oh no, this is wisdom when it's actually the recreation of some suffering in our lives. Um, it's the importance of having a teacher, a mentor, sponsor, really wise friendships that you share everything with, a good therapist that you share everything with, um, and maybe more than one person. I feel like it's, because uh, sometimes you find that person that will just kind of co-sign your shit. I've seen that, like I, I, for a lot of my life, I've had two main teachers that I would take the big stuff to, my life, big stuff in my life. But then I would also watch that sometimes I would choose which one because I sort of knew who would co-sign my shit and who wouldn't. All right. And so we have, so sometimes it's better to have a little bit of a team of people that we're sharing stuff with in case you have that code of friend, friend that's going to be like, no, no, you're fine. It's okay. You know, you have somebody in your life that's going to be like, what the fuck are you in a relationship with who? What are you doing? <laughs> not cool don't do that to yourself that's probably enough for tonight um i want to make an announcement and a um i don't know an encouragement the against the stream annual fall retreat uh I went out of my way to make it really cheap this year and got this place up in Big Bear. Uh, it used to cost over $1,000 to do the week, like $1,200, $1,500 to do the week. This year, we're able to do it for $750 because it's at a retreat center that's not so expensive. Uh, we actually left the place that we did it for, in, for 15 years, more than 15 years in Joshua Tree because they raised their prices so much. So I was like, I'm going to do everything I can to make it accessible to the Sangha and nobody's registering. And I don't know if it's post COVID, if it's, and when I say nobody, I think we have 12 people registered and we need like 20, 25 in order to make it happen just to pay for the retreat center and everything. Um, I said last week, and I remind everybody that I've also, it's only 750 to do this seven day retreat, which is like the cheapest seven day, you know, room and board meditation retreat you'll find anywhere pretty much other than the ones that are free, but short of free, <laughs> 750, really affordable. And then I also raised some scholarship money. So you can actually come to the retreat for as low as $250. You just have to want to come, to come. 
Uh, if there was somebody that really wanted to come and couldn't even afford the 250, I probably could make something happen for you. My own feeling is that actually it's important to have some uh, what, like skin in the game. It's important to pay something uh, just to help pay for the cost of it and the pay for your food and, and if you can. But if there was somebody that was serious about coming that couldn't even afford the 250, I could probably work that out for you. Um, so I need like 10 more people to come in order to pull off this retreat. It's a month away. It's October. Um, somebody know the dates? Links in the chat, buddy. I know, but then I'd have to open it. 9th through 16th. Thank you. 9th to 16th. How so it's, a, it's basically one month from now. You have a you know four you know four weeks from now, the 9th to the 16th. Uh, seven day retreat right up the hill from us, you know, hour and a half, two hours away up by Big Bear. Those of you at home, you know, traveling in, really consider joining the, the Sangha for this. Um, you know, the thought had occurred to me of like, oh, we might not be able to pull it off um, if, you know, but the truth is, even if I canceled it at this point, we have contracts signed that we have to pay for the retreat center anyways, even if, so we're doing it, it's happening. And I hope some of you join us and you got a month to, to think about it and to come. You know, in this whole conversation about developing wisdom, if you have a daily practice, if you sit for a half hour or 45 minutes or even an hour a day, it takes years to develop the discernment, the wisdom. When you go on retreat for a week and you get to sit 15 hours a day, or you don't sit 15 hours a day, but you do seven sitting meditations and walking meditations, and you live in noble silence for that week, the amount of mind training that you get on retreat is probably equal to like a year of your daily practice. So if you'd like to fast forward your practice a year or two, come on retreat. I don't know, that's probably not really the right math, but it's something, <laughs> it's something like that, you know, in my own experience of like those retreat experiences where I got to be in the silence and practicing for days and not just a half hour, an hour during the day. Two years of therapy for seven fifty, or your suffering back guarantee. Kind of. Hey Noah, how do you feel about announcing it at refuge recovery meetings for the next month? That would be against the traditions of refuge recovery. It would, unfortunately. Okay. Yes. Slide it into the parking lot. Yeah. No. Yeah, you can tell people individually, but. We can't announce that at meetings. This isn't against the stream event. So I'm going to leave it there. Enough pleading. Um, what else did I want to say? Oh, we have new sweatshirts, new meditate and destroy hoodies, both lightweight and heavyweight. So check out the different ones. If you want the thin one or the thick one, we have those here. Uh, they're also available online through the uh, against the stream website. If you want to check those out. Um, Class is done by donation. Against the Stream is supported by donations as it has been for 15 years or so, something like that. We've been doing this. Um, please be generous. Suggested donation. Uh, uh, somebody said to me last week, because I, I say suggested donation is like 15 to $20. He said, you've been saying that for 10 years. Inflation. You should probably up it. 
So uh, more than $20 is the suggested donation, <laughs> just to help us pay the rent and, and exist as a, as a center, support me as a teacher. So give what you can. If you can afford $20, $30, please give it. If you can afford $5 or $10, please give it. If you can't afford anything, know that you're welcome here, regardless of ability to donate. Everyone's welcome here and we have expenses. So be as generous as feels right to you, including if you're at home. Um, that's it for tonight. May any goodness that comes from our practice be gathered and shared outward in all directions. May each one of us get as free as possible and together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks. Good to see everybody. See you soon. I actually won't be here next week, but you have an amazing sub. Don't ditch class next week. Jason Sif is going to teach you how to unlearn meditation. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.